0: Pursuit Of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, The Pursuit Of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits
1: of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to The Pursuit Of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development, New Leonard Media. With me is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How are you, <laughs> Ryan? I'm doing well. It's been a while. It's been a uh, little while. T- today I had a uh, that is Olympic enough champion. of oh, okay. that. Our guest today is Nick Beatleston, Executive Director, Commonplace.
2: How are you? I'm here. It's winter. Wow. It, those are. I don't know if you wanted this to be evergreen, but I just screwed that metaphysical up. Metaphysical
1: statements. <laughs> I'm here. That's a great way to say, to answer how are you rather. But to begin with, as we were talking prior to going, the name, commonplace, and in your location, commonplace, grounds, there's some similarities happening. So your identity, are you in an identity crisis at all
2: times? Yeah, I don't think it's so much of an identity crisis. It's, you know, figuring out what role we play in a very interconnected community. There's so many folks doing amazing work across Northern Michigan. There's also a lot of duplicity or duplicativeness, right? There's a lot of something.
1: Well, when I think about what you do, I'll just tell you just personally, I think it's cool. It's unique. It's, is community. It's something that's, that's new, something that's needed. Those are just things that I'm just rolling off the tongue from one human to another. But what's the elevator pitch when, you know, socially, let's remember when we went to parties, you're at a party. I envision you in a tux. (laughs) I see you in a tux, 1000%. And somebody says, what do you do? And you don't have a ton of time. What's the elevator pitch? Yeah,
2: I'm lucky enough to run Commonplace, which is now two community co-working locations, and so we are the work home away from home for some really fantastic community-focused organizations and small businesses.
1: Wow. That's great. And it doesn't sound practiced. It sounds like, you know, you've had to say it a few times, but it's really <laughs> engaging. And you just talked about spaces. You're in some very unique spaces. Can you talk to that a little bit?
2: Yeah. And I think all spaces are unique and we don't spend enough time thinking about the physical spaces that we occupy and thinking about our agency in the physical spaces that we occupy. I think we occupy our spaces as much as they occupy us. So, right now, we've got two locations. We're up on the second floor of the box right there at 8th and Boardman, a building with some really interesting history, which I'm happy to talk more about. And then we just opened our second location up on the second floor of the Common Grounds Cooperative Building, which is just an incredibly exciting place to be. So many awesome humans. Wow.
1: And the first place, now that there is more than one, you have to think of two different things and two different elements. But talking about the first place, what was special about it? Why was it the place to be the first place?
2: Yeah, it's actually not our first location. We started up above Rare Bird, which looking at the the history of Rare Bird is also a really fantastic place to be. What Tina and her team have created there is a phenomenal, really employee-focused, community-centric business. So it was great to start there. So we were up there in 2017. I was a tenant of the space at the time, and then moved over to the box, I want to say around 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that building started off, as its name would suggest, as a cigar box factory, serving one of like... Thirty cigar companies in Traverse City. There used to be a ton of tobacco processing up here. Canadian tobacco
1: that doesn't come up a lot. No, it hasn't come up a lot on this podcast, and we're with a lot of prolific Traverse City folk a lot. So, what, in your opinion, does a space need at this
2: point in your time with Commonplace? What does it need? And real quick, I, I will add that that building has been a number of things. Probably the Cigar Box Factory is the least interesting. For a number of years, it was a, a really progressive physical therapy studio, particularly serving those with special abilities and needs. And so they... What time
1: frame was that? Does that? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great
2: question. Yeah. Jeff Haas, who's with Building Bridges for Music, was really instrumental in that physical therapy <laughs> studio. No
0: pun intended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: And yeah, so they would, again, work with special needs and really get those people that they served out in the community across Michigan, participating in, you know, races and other things to normalize that, to take some of those physical activities out of the realm of, you know, seasoned athletes and and make them accessible to all kinds of folks way before it was super cool to talk about accessibility. Right.
1: Well, that's an interesting point of view because it obviously led somewhere. And how significant is that to the culture of the organization? Because hearing you talk about it, there's knowledge, but there's some passion there.
2: So I I totally circumvented your earlier question, but I I think there is a strong through line because what a physical space needs and what a physical space can be doesn't really stop at the boundaries of that physical space. I think having a, a finite space sort of gives you Agency and authority to convene. Hey, we got a we got a place. Come to our place. But really, what it can serve as is a home base for work that really reverberates past those walls. If you're doing it right, yeah. And it's not easy. I mean, Lord I could, knows
1: we don't that, do it and right and all the time. You didn't circumvent anything. I could be on this track and hearing you for the next nine hours because you talk about how a space feels, it's important. And I don't think that's talked about enough and probably not talked about enough at, you know, major corporations decidedly, you know, places where that stuff matters probably more and more, but you you still have to be a business and you have to operate. So what's kind of the down and dirty stuff? What are the things that a building or a space really needs for you to be successful?
2: Yeah, it's, it's so dependent on the people that inhabit it. We are a 501c3, we are a nonprofit, but the majority of our revenue is earned revenue. So we function very much like a business. Mm-hmm. And coworking is a fascinating industry. I would posit that most people that are in the coworking industry don't understand the industry that they're in. Because if you look at a coworking space sort of conceptually, if you look at it on paper, oh, it's pretty straightforward. I'm just going to buy a building or lease a space, and then I'll sublease it for more than I'm paying, and I'll make money. Yeah. Easy. Right, right. (laughs) But I think folks tend to underestimate, A, the amount of time that goes into managing essentially a bunch of individual real estate contracts, and then how important and how much time it takes to really build a culture that makes that space attractive. I think what's in a physical space somewhat ironically matters less than what's happening in that space, than who's showing up and how they're showing up. Right. I think we've all traveled and been to really cool looking co-working spaces that were ghost towns
1: mm-hmm.
2: because they built the thing. They didn't check to see if anybody in their community wanted it. They, they didn't figure out who that group of people was that was really going to initially inhabit the space and who they wanted that space to be for. They just. Sure. Build something shiny. Well, you touched on something there. Oh, sorry. Uh, I
0: was going to ask, it. so is it more, you're looking like it's niche down where there's synergy between the organizations that utilize that space? Yeah. Similar to in a business world with having referral partners, potential referral partners, subletting some of your spots so that like there's...
2: Yeah, referral partners, I think at a base, but that still tends to be very transactional, very sort of quid pro quo. What we're lucky enough to have in our spaces are organizations that are already working together or are really excited to be in an environment where they know they're gonna wind up working together. So I think about in our new location, we've got TLD, Taste of Local Difference, a fantastic local social enterprise right down the hall from Anaberry Farms, a great ethical animal husbandry farm. They're not collaborating together yet that I know of, but one of the reasons they want to be in that space because they know they're going to have a chance to work together. And then Crosshatch is right down the hall from them. They're already teaming up. So there's a lot of pre-existing synergy and then a lot more synergy that we know is going to come. And also, it doesn't just happen. I think that's the thing that a lot of co-working spaces fail to understand.
1: Yeah.
2: If we just have a happy hour once a month, Yeah, people are going to network and, and work together. It requires a little more... Does the happy hour making. seem
0: like it just invites all the thirsty people? And I mean, that's, happy that's hours no are no intended awesome.
2: either, but I mean like,
0: like, <laughs> like people that are kind of hurting for business and need to, you know.
1: Isn't that the point of networking though? In the end, you do want people to be connected. Yeah. And, and yeah, I do not want while, but...
2: to discount the importance of getting people together yeah. around good drink and good food. I think that's such a critical kicking off point for really important work. But I, We've all been to networking events where, you know, you get five cards and, you know, at most you use them to level out a wobbly coffee table yeah, later. Yeah, <laughs> no, no relationship
0: truly built from it. I yeah. What I meant is like when you can feel the difference when somebody has to make a sale mm, yeah. and somebody's looking to do business, mm-hmm. you know, and wants to really build a relationship in long-term, they're looking for that mutual benefit and they're a go-giver. And then you have somebody who... Shows up to events like that and is just, just trying to get as many cards and throw as many cards and doesn't really invest in you as a person, let alone your
2: organization. Yeah, that definitely happens. I will say that you'll see me all across town, but my event attendance decisions are heavily predicated on where the free food's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I bring Tupperware, man. You know, I'm so, so
1: I, I print a menu ahead of time. <laughs> right. To get Nick, and can I ask you, Mark? Uh, what you said was really, I think, profound. But did you mean to say "go getter"? No. Oh, you, did you mean to no, say "go giver"? because "go giver" is a fa- brilliant. I'm I'm a fan of the book "Go
0: Giver." Okay. And and I just it's wanted basically to call out to that because I didn't know
1: it, it's basically as
0: as a business owner myself, who I've never worked in sales ever. I've worked in politics. Which is kind oh, of. Oh, you've worked
2: in sales, buddy. Yes,
0: that's what I mean. So I've recognized there's an element of sales to that, which is still, to me, sales was like a, a bad word. You know, like mm. it just it made me feel gross, and and so I had to educate myself to like, well, of course, there's there's good marketing. You know, there's good ways of letting people know, like, hey, I have a service that I think is of value to people, and I'm here if you need me. And then there's the other like aggressive marketing where it's like, get out of my feed, get off my phone, get <laughs> like, get off my doorstep. Like I didn't ask for this. And so that's what I was getting at with the networking events. Like sometimes if that's all that your community is based off of that you're trying to build is like, we're going to have this networking event. It kind of
1: seems like people are only there to speed date and not, you know. Yeah. And now we're you know, post a time when we couldn't meet. So are we in a fervor? Are we in a early 1970s fueled like we just can't wait to meet and we're meeting as frantically as we can and how many meetings have you clocked today person you know yeah. and are you logging your meetings are we not that intense
2: anymore yeah and i i want to push back a little bit cuz i've heard a lot of this the assertion you know that we weren't able to meet during the pandemic and granted i'm sort of a textbook extrovert but I talked to so many fantastic people around the world that I would not have taken the time to connect with during the pandemic because, well, shit, I couldn't go to Brew. I couldn't go to Mundo's. Yeah. And and so I I think it it really expanded my thinking on what it means to connect. Face-to-face, three-dimensional face-to-three-dimensional face face is always going to be the best way to form a deeper connection. But holy cow, we live in such an amazing... keep saying the word amazing. We live in such a rich and vibrant world with so many people that are passionate and experts about what they do. And a couple of years ago, it must have been during Film Fest. I'm I'm not a big fan of the guy, but I was listening to Michael Moore and he said, you guys realize you're a peninsula on a fucking peninsula, right? (laughs) We we can tend to be a little isolated. Where is that t-shirt?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, that's hot. And If amazing is is what's in your heart, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think It's lazy. We can do better. Well, speaking of extraordinary, you served for five years in the Army where the food quality was unexpectedly pleasant. And you got to jump out of airplanes. And you also achieved your bachelor's degree in communication and media studies. So just putting yourself in the headspace back then, what was the dream? What was the plan? And what
2: was the reality that presented itself to you? I think I watched too many action movies in the the late '90s, early 2000s. I had a, a kindred re- spirit, I knew, I knew it, I knew it. Yes, I had a very specific idea of yeah what I was getting into. You know, I think it's it's borderline criminal that we let military recruiters into high school because man, we're just so stupid. Well, I'm projecting. I was so stupid at that age. Yeah, I'm sure. For me, a lot of it was escapism at the time. You know, I'm I'm getting out of the the town, the family, the immediate surroundings that I was mm-hmm. raised in, and I'm gonna go around the world and meet interesting people and shoot them.
1: Yeah, the old saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Yeah, interesting how that's been commoditized, even that phrase. <laughs> yeah,
2: it it sticks for a reason. I was a really lousy soldier. I was just not cut out for it. Is that something you're saying now, or did you
1: think that at the time? I mean, I'll, or were I'll, you told that at the uh, time? Yeah, I'll, I'll show
2: you. I'll show you the letters from commanding officers. How so? Like, at least one of them wrote in a counseling statement: "If you were in any other military, we'd have shot you by now." Which is wow. that's not still legal? Pretty <laughs> so, fantastic. I wish I had that framed. What do you? <laughs> that's some good motivator. I, I, I don't mean, to go in this <laughs> right direction. I'm just really curious.
0: Yeah. Like, not a good soldier, as in your workout ethic wasn't there, or you didn't fall in line, or you challenged the authority. Yeah,
2: I definitely constantly challenged authority. And people sometimes wear that as a badge of honor, but there's an effective and a tactful way to push back against authority. And then there's just stupid rebelliousness. Looking back now, there were so many people who could have been mentors, who I think were trying to help, but I was just too young and dumb and headstrong.
1: And thought you were going to win the argument.
2: <laughs> right. Which, how could that possibly... Well, you had
1: to have had a, a reasonable expectation of the role of authority in any branch of the military. So was I it... I don't think I did. You did I don't think...
2: I, no, I don't think was that it, expectation was uh, rooted was in any kind of reality.
1: the JCVD movies in Surplus that gave you maybe an expectation of maybe I'll be the guy who kind of bucks the trend and gets to be the rebel...
2: It'd be the Bill Murray and Stripes and yeah, I don't know what the fantasy was, and I, I should say I did two deployments. I worked very hard while I was in the military, but I still spent a lot of time thinking about man, if I'd have made some different choices, could I have gotten more out of those those years. those five years? Would I still yeah. be in?
0: Well, see, I was wondering if you're more like Luke Wilson with his like. You always said, lead follower, get out of the way. So I got out of the way. Like an idiocracy (laughs) reference. Yeah. Well, and and again, that's
1: what I was trying to, another kindred spirit moment. But that's what I was trying to get to is, you know, you were clearly doing some significant things there. You had some significant learning. So this is kind of the dream we talked about that was clearly shattered. So then what was the plan? And then what was the reality that presented itself?
2: Yeah. And part of some of the self-depreciating nature of that comment, I don't know if this fully comes across, I have great respect and reverence for those people that have the kind of fortitude and discipline to be career soldiers. Again, not a path that would work for me, but just hugely impressed by what people can do and what they have done for causes that they believe in. It was really interesting to be on the ground in places that you normally only hear about read about and to talk to civilians and to learn about what they were living through and and what their experience was and it it really shook a lot of my core beliefs i grew up in a blue collar midwestern family and you know the people that i were interacting with were the other you know i'd only seen them again, in, in movies. The other.
1: And was that a concept that was known to you at the time, or did you affirm that at another period? No.
2: no I, I mean, th- there was certainly some lightning bolt revelations, particularly on my first deployment in Afghanistan, when I was just out talking to people and realizing, oh, my God, I know somebody exactly like you back home. I know somebody exactly like you back home. Oh, we all... I mean it sounds super kumbaya but the personal revelation because i think everyone has to experience this firsthand oh holy shit we're all pretty yeah. much the same we, we want the same things there are really exciting unique cultural differences that should be celebrated but when you boil it all down people yeah. want to be left the hell alone they want their kids to have a better yeah. life than they had they want to pursue their work their art their craft
1: no that's not too kumbaya at all we put people are people over this segment if we could afford it. The, the rights, that's gonna be a little bit out of
2: our reach. So what brought you to Traverse City? Yeah, so when I got out of the military, I really wasn't sure how the skills I had learned translated to the civilian world at all. I was a scout, and so you know, unlike being a helicopter mechanic, it's, it's really not clear how you go about doing that in a very different kind of peaceful civilian environment. So I bounced around for a little bit, spent some time in New York, which is an amazing city to visit. I couldn't imagine living there. New long York. Term. How
1: soon after you know the last day of your time in the military, at least at that capacity, what is that like? I mean, I figured there'd thanks a lot.
2: It that feels was, like
1: there should be more, but I think that there's not. Yeah, both in, I and the
2: army were agreed that just, you know we would you, happily you know, go thanks. see other people. <laughs> yeah, they weren't <laughs> sad to see me go. I was not sad to leave. I have much more gratitude in retrospect than I did at the time. Yeah, incredible gratitude for the life-changing experiences, both the good and the bad. But yeah, leaving that... I mean, it's not just a job. It's very much an insular culture. You know, everyone's experience is different. Mine, I didn't feel like I was particularly prepared to, again, leave that really insular culture. And maybe other folks have a lot more support. But yeah, really just drifting mentally... Drifting physically around the country, yeah, New York,
1: big place to go. And and prior to this pursuit, you had experience as a writer and working in media. So that, that came after. Oh, really?
2: But part of the process of figuring out how do I take these I mean, skills uh, that prior I prior to scout... your
1: experience at commonplace by my. Apologies. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, so you clearly found your way into creativity. I mean, did you ever have? Ted Turnerish aspirations uh, in a way? Hmm. Did you think creativity could be a sustainable career
2: enterprise? I don't know what I'm going to have later for dinner. And that's about as far in advance as I generally plan. Sounds uh, very
1: artistic. Traditionally <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, for a new right? father.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I know and exactly what father. I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and eat cold noodles while rocking <laughs> my newborn. But yeah, no, I, I think I had an innate ability for communicating. I've always been able to string a couple of words together, but at my core, god damn, guys, we're diving deep. At my core, I'm fundamentally really curious and really excited about stuff, and I just want to tell other people, this is so cool. I want you to know about this. I want everyone to know about this. And so I any writing that I've ever done comes from that place. Here's the thing I learned. I want you to know it too.
1: It's like the heart of an entertainer
2: in a way. Mm.
1: You know, you want to connect. You want people to feel the joy that you feel that it's tangible. You're shaken, you know? It's like when you used to get to go into Toys R Us when that was a thing. (laughs) You're like, yes, I'm here. You attune the smells of it, the, the idea, the look of that you know, giraffe and everything. But was there a transformative moment for you at all professionally that led you do you think to commonplace do you think was there one kind of lightning bolt that got you to this moment
2: yeah so shortly after let me take a step back new york for a little while again great city to to visit very chaotic to live in it turns out you don't have to do everything all the time nobody ever told uh, you know yeah i I thought something's happened 24 7 i gotta be there and (laughs) Thank God there are illicit substances that, at least for a short amount of time, allow you to try and go and do all those things. Is that
1: and not to you know propel any type of preconceived notion, but you were used to, I'm sure, a pretty twenty four seven lifestyle. So adjusting back to what only you would call years later to dawn life. on me
2: why I moved to the Bronx with <laughs> and no I mean, Spanish skills and Not skills to ask a, a, a really obvious question, but yeah. yeah,
1: New York, it's big. It's noisy. Were you drawn to to that? Was it was the idea of the Midwest, you know, almost repellent to you subconsciously?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was. I, I think the chaos was attractive. I've always, again, for reasons that any psychoanalyst could quickly figure out, I've always been drawn to that that type of chaos. I think there's a lot of beauty in it. There's a lot of potential in it. Yeah, I like the noise.
1: And you could say that. A lot of that is transferable into the professional world, the world of nonprofit, the world of groups and folks who have to work hard and where community and camaraderie is essential. Would you say community and camaraderie is essential in the spaces that you're in? Or, you know, can you get by on the merits of other things? Can other, you know, competitors, you know, try to get by on the merits of
2: other things? I think people try that all the time and it works for a little while. But if your competitive advantage is flash and is the niceness of the furniture, well, that's really easy for other people to outcompete you on. You just need to have a little bit more money to build something that's just a little bit nicer. And it turns out all nice spaces degrade over time. Right. So <laughs> what do you have when Patina's gone?
1: Well, you have to do something that is almost in a way unenviable, and you have to do something that other businesses in a way have to do, is you have to cater to the tastes of so many, like a hotel. You know, you try to be as broad as you can, the ones that are super niche are super niche. So what is your philosophy there? You know, this is a unique area you're drawing from, and we'll get to that in a second, but what is your aesthetic idea just off the bat, thinking about the website, thinking about how you present?
2: So we recently had a breakfast for all of our members. We had everybody in a room that was way too small. (laughs) Um, Good way to make
1: it look filled. It's good though.
2: Yeah, it is true. I had to run around and grab more tables and chairs. We made everybody waffles. We thought about having it catered, but we realized we've really got a home cooking crowd. And so we had a great facilitator who led those of our members who were able to be present. Not everybody could be there but she led the group in conversations about what they expect to see out of a shared workspace. What sort of values do they wanna see made manifest? How do they wanna see conflicts resolved? What do they wanna see those norms and those expectations be? And one of the really clear things that came out of that session because not everything was clear. You know, to your point, there people had to bring opinions on on some different fundamental things. But what was really clear is that our members want and expect to see a co-working space that exists for more than just the benefit and perpetuation of that space. They want a space that serves the broader community, and what that looks like can and and will mean a number of different things. Sure but you also
1: have to cater and do cater to solo workers mm-hmm. folks who may have a working style that is a little more solitary so how do you consider yeah and this, and, and this plenty is a big of one artistic people you know people who you would think would be part of the collective so what's the strategy
2: there what are the ideas continuing to talk about it I know having a dialogue is a little cliche but cohabitation is a motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. And it requires constant communication and dialogue because what I want to see as an extrovert that runs a co-working space isn't necessarily what all of the members want to see. So one of the things that we've always talked a lot about and most recently at this breakfast continue to talk about is how do we, within our space, create norms around collective work and individual work How do we make it okay for people to close their door, even though it's a very, you know, sort of boisterous, friendly atmosphere, to close their door and say, I'm on a deadline, man. I got to get this grant in. I have to, you know, land this client. And there's no easy answer. But continuing to talk through it and work through it, it's not just important for our space, it's important for any collaborative environment, whether that's within one organization or it's you know a, a multiple organization right. space.
1: Well, thinking about the interpersonals and in talking to you, it sounds pretty joyous, but there probably have to be moments where people are missing. They're not collaborating correctly or in the way that everybody would like. So is that something that is in your purview and things that you have to deal with in any way, or does it come up?
2: Yeah. I have to be real careful when answering you know, a question that's been addressed multiple times in our emails and our communications. What do you mean you don't know that? We've made that so clear to you. Yeah, And so it's really important to take a step back and realize that, again, our members are not homogenous. Different people need different things and they need different things at different times. Mm-hmm. And while... Commonplace is one of the most important things in my life, aside from family and and some other really important projects in the community. It's not the number one priority for everybody who's showing up. We hope that it's more than just a transactional relationship of, you know, they pay us X amount of dollars, we give them X amount of square feet. We hope it goes beyond that, but we are providing a service for people.
1: You are the first executive director for Commonplace. Is that correct? Officially?
2: Uh, Officially, sure. But Commonplace was... You're very modest. I mean, can I (laughs) just say
1: it and you can just nod or we can just say that you acquiesced with the head motion. So can you talk a little bit about the structure of the staffing and who you have on staff or volunteers? And after having said that, is it optimal right now?
2: Yeah. So I want to first start by talking about the origins of the organization. And earlier we talked about the first physical space that we inhabited, but Commonplace was very much the creation of Kate Redman, a very good friend and mentor, and a number of other community members that all came together to design the first space. There were exhaustive conversations with people in the community about what they would wanna see out of a collaborative workspace. Many of those folks came from the nonprofit world, but it certainly wasn't exclusively Mm -hmm. nonprofit people. Yeah. And so Kate is still on the board of Commonplace. She's still very much involved in providing that mentorship and some of those values, holding space for those values and some of those ethos, especially when I'm, you know, looking at an annual budget and having to make tough decisions. She's a fantastic moral compass for the organization. Well, you talked about,
1: you know, the, the desire for this. And so you obviously had that engagement with Traverse City and the area and pu- in the public. You know, Traverse City seems like a she in for this kind of thing, but was it always a guarantee or was there ever any moment of doubt? Like, is there enough Every here for this? Every goddamn
2: day. Really? Really? Yeah. Uh. It's one thing for a lot of people to stand up and say they want something. It's another to continue to... right. I think this is a challenge that every co-working operator has. All their members say, oh, we want more events. We want more opportunities to, to be together. And then on that Wednesday night, come on, guys. Come on. Every to you got to yeah, comes you gotta, out.
1: Yeah. Right. And got It's got something. And, and you know,
2: they're, they're all legitimate reasons because people's time is precious and there are a lot of demands on people's time. So uh, earlier when I talked about all the work that goes into building a culture that is really attractive to people—that's where where so much of that time goes into. It's also if people aren't always showing up in the ways that we hope they would, where are we failing them? Where are we not providing sufficient value? At the end of the day, it's any organization's fault, be they nonprofit or for profit. Mm-hmm. Not their fault, but ultimate responsibility lands with them. Right. Did you start producing a product no one really wants because you fell in love with it? Are you offering a service that no one really wants because you didn't do the hard work of having those initial and ongoing conversations with the people that you want to serve? Right. It's also really hard when, when you hear feedback that you don't want to hear. Yeah. But and it's... what if
1: you're really passionate, you know, and you believe it? And, you, and to the point of insanity, everybody else is wrong, you know, and then it's better maybe to try and fail or to have the research and do the right thing and put that energy in a trajectory that's going to yield a positive result, if you can.
2: Who's the work for, ultimately? Right. <laughs> is it for right. one individual or a small group of individuals, or is it in service of something bigger and broader? Yeah. And if it really is in service of something bigger and broader... Yeah, You have to continually do the work to yeah. make and it sure. And it'll find it's, its way in the yeah. right ways.
1: Well, you talked about engagement, I think, is, is what you were saying. And ultimately, if somebody's not engaged, that's the organization's responsibility. So for you, what do you see as the best first step in trying to get somebody reengaged?
2: It's absolutely interpersonal. And it's it's coffee, man. We have so many great local coffee shops. One of the best parts of my job, if I could only do one thing in my role, it would just be to have coffee constantly with all of our members. I learn so much about them and so much about what they're doing and what we can help provide them with, how we can help support them, again, beyond just providing that physical space. Oh, you're working on X, Y, and Z? Oh my God, I got to connect you to this person and this person. Or, you're struggling with this professionally, personally, you know, to the degree that it's helpful. Yeah. I'm, I'm there to talk about it. Yeah.
1: Well, you're clearly very engaged and it must take a lot of time to be this engaged. So how many employees do you have? Do you have a group of people who reports to you and where are your responsibilities there?
2: Yeah. I have at this point, one part-time staffer Mm -hmm. who is our community manager. She does a fantastic job. She's stepped into the role within the past six months, but you would never know that she hasn't been there for years. We're also starting to contract out more services, communications, things like that. Things that Yeah, I could do it. My growing team could do it, but there are some really sharp people out there and I would rather go earn and raise the money to pay an expert to do it than continue to...
1: And that's an interesting position to have to be in as a leader of an organization. Going, well, if I want this, you know, most others have to put a case together for it, make sure there's adequate funds in the budget for that, and there you go. But you just said you have to find out how to get that money somehow uh, in the best way possible in the quickest way possible and hopefully it works out.
2: Yeah, something interesting you said the the quickest way possible. All small businesses have this. There's there's a sense of urgency. The relationships that sustain an organization long term are not formed quickly. And one of the biggest challenges for a lot of nonprofits or for you know for profits that are seeking meaningful long-term investment. Is fighting that urge to rush to ask for the upfront cash rather than really building that deep and impactful relationship that can sustain important work long term, which is easy to say, super hard, you know, looking at a a scary balance sheet at the end of the month. Wow. At the end of the year.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's almost its own economic as it relates to this sort of work podcast. I mean, there's so many different ways that you could be, you know, you're beholden to a a board at the end of the day, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what I think to, I, to
2: I, a board? Yeah, but more importantly, and and I think our board and, and I'm happy to talk about the the awesome folks that we have on the board, but ultimately we are certainly beholden to our members the the board is there and and they would all say this they're there to support the work that the staff do to bring value to the members right. so I, I don't worry i don't lose sleep about what my board members are going to say i do lose sleep about what our members are going to say well,
1: that is phenomenal and we're going to get to this but what is just a key for you in successfully engaging a board and how are you being able to say what you just said because it's contrary to a lot of what we hear on this show, mm. to a lot of what you know, you may hear, like, oh, the board, it's really difficult. And and I get the passion about your members, your guests, who really, and hopefully the board knows that that pays the bills. But just what, do you have a key to get into the place that you're in? Because you look really zen when you said it.
2: Yeah. I do have to remind our board sometimes what pays the bills. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little work they're, yet they're, still. Oh my God, every, everyone does, but... But all important relationships require a lot of maintenance and trust and support. Our organization, we actually just had our last meeting for the year. Uh, A few of our longstanding board members who really stood by the organization during the pandemic have stepped off and we have some more folks coming on. One of the things I'm really looking forward to in January and February is that we're gonna go into strategic planning for the first time in quite a few years, we now have two spaces. Our role and the value that we provide our community is expanding, and it's really time to sit down and think about what the long-term future of the organization looks like, right? So our strategic planning is going to take place over the course of a couple of days. We're going to go spend some time right on little Travers in some cabins. We've got some great facilitators coming in to help with the process. We're gonna hash stuff out all day, and then at night we're gonna to cook together. We're gonna to have some beers around a campfire. Wake up in the morning, probably do a cold plunge in Little Traverse, which is terrible because it's only probably. like knee deeps for five miles out, and then we're gonna get back at it. That's the kind of relationship that I want to have with a board. Yeah, uh, they are mentors and advisors, and they are friends. And that's not the relationship that everyone is lucky enough to have with their board. Yeah. And when I say friends, I don't mean supportive at all costs. These are <laughs> right. very critical friends. And, that... and
1: real friends, you know,
2: should be critical when they need to be critical. So that's,
1: it's still a great metaphor. Well, from the website, if I may get corny, the guiding principles positive belief, kindness, generosity, joy, and appreciation. Where did that come from? And why are those important to what you do? Because it could be seen as why would you have that? You have this you know, space where you just probably have to police people to make sure they're not stealing pens from one another. Why was it important to have guiding principles? Why was it important to have a culture
2: at all? I don't think any space, I mean, even more broadly, any organization can be successful without a really good culture. I think a lot of organizations are comfortable picking a set of core values off of a sheet because some consultant told them they're supposed to do that and that's it. You know, They're on the website and, and that's really the only place that they show up. And it really is important for us to continually live those values and to stress test those values. And one thing that we've not done a good enough job over the past couple of years is check in with our members and say, are we living up to some of these espoused values and and that's something we're starting to do more, and we'll we'll get really are they aware ruthless. of the values
1: are they you know I envision again, you seem to have brought them into your heart your business heart as employees almost, so you know employees sometimes carry a little card of their company's values. you know how is it clear to the members you know what you stand for, and how do you use that as a tool to gain?
2: You know more members yeah having a card to hand out where their values on it sounds terrible i've guess, been there i guess there worked are. at
1: places that did that you know here's how you know what we stand for asked, we put it on a card you know somebody would come up your general manager would be like what's core value five and if you didn't recite it well yeah this might sound reminiscent of the military and it yeah. <laughs> at times felt that way <laughs> yeah, exactly. how many pieces of flair do
2: you have on your vest yeah, exactly right. the flair yeah. principle oh man, I've thought a lot about this. And I've actually thought about not posting our values or or any kind of values because I... I like where this is going. This is rambly and and unvetted. Mm -hmm. Um, I love this. But I I feel like as soon as you... Same thing with a mission statement, same thing as a vision. I think these are really powerful tools to motivate a team internally. But I also feel like as soon as you put that shit on your website... Mm -hmm then you can just lean on it. You can lean on the rhetoric. I feel the same thing about accessibility and inclusivity statements. And again, I I understand the intention and the value that those can bring. But if you have to say we're open and welcoming of all people, (laughs) you kind of miss the point. Everyone should in your community should know that. They should know that by the work that you do. They should know that by how you show up and, and how other people show up yeah within your space, within your organization.
1: It's interesting because some people on the other side of it see it printed and think, no, oh, that's bullshit. Anybody can print that on their website. So you're always trying to defend your principles in a way, although that's not what it's meant for. It's meant in the way you articulate it was wonderful in that it's a feeling, but you're trying to convey it to again, all these different people who have different needs for their spaces, or it may be this one person who has their own need. Mm -hmm. So again, you still are trying to convey that. And do you think you're successful on a daily basis or how are you checking your success in that regard?
2: Yeah, we're not above having sayings and platitudes posted on our walls, which is a staple of all co-working spaces everywhere. We've got a number of quotes from both Steven Johnson, particularly from his work, Where Good Ideas Come From, and then a lot of quotes from Adrienne Marie Brown and her work Emergent Strategies. And we've got at least one member who, you know, after walking through the space and chatting with me said, part of the reason I'm here is because I walked in and saw that Adrienne Marie Brown quote and thought, oh yeah, okay, this space is for me. So there is a value to some of that stuff. So I I don't mean to discount that. But we don't have the same fucking Steve Jobs quotes that, you know, a lot of co-working spaces have. (laughs) I was drawn to
1: to her quote. It talks about potential and it's phenomenal. And, And, you know, it's not super obvious either. It's not just thrown at your face when you get onto the website. But again, as an organization doing what you do, you have to. Think about marketing. You have to think about all this stuff. So I have a
2: great communication consultant who's pushing me on a lot of that right now.
1: But you know, again, you very clearly want something real and tangible. But again, there's a business that you have to balance in a balance sheet that you you know just talked about. So what's the hardest part about that duality for you? What's the hardest part about those two things, or is there?
2: Oh no, no, it's it's embracing abundance and not falling prey to a scarcity mindset. We live in an incredibly rich community and there's enough. There's absolutely enough. We could easily fill five more co-working spaces. So when I look on LinkedIn and see something that's happening somewhere else, and I start to feel, you know, I start to feel that the the elbows coming out. God damn it, why is it happening there and not here? Yeah. It's, and and we're all subject to that, but that's absolutely the wrong mentality. That's that's a lot of drive, you know, leaders. And it's a practice, man. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not particularly good at it, but it's, it's being. Would you call yourself
1: kind of fanatical about the success of what you're doing?
2: Yeah. In a certain way. Cause there are definitely different kinds of success and. Some metrics for a successful organization, for a successful co-working space, achieving those metrics require sacrificing other things. To meet some of those metrics for success, they require a finite mindset. And it's so easy to snap into a finite mindset. Right. And having a, an infinite mindset, and again, thinking about acknowledging abundance rather than scarcity is just... It, it is a constant practice because we're not hardwired for it. Right. Even if it is a universal yeah. truth, that yeah. there's enough.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful concept to articulate occasionally. You know, it's not always the land of plenty in everybody's eyes. But looking back internally to all the things that you've accomplished, you know, what are you proudest up to at this point and why is it making Lewis Black laugh?
2: Yeah. That was a big one. I definitely accosted him out behind the theater here in town. He was not- <laughs> You're smooth. He was not happy to, <laughs> to talk to. He just wanted to get the hell out of town. Yeah, my, my joke to Louis Black was, Mr. Black, I'm a huge fan. I've, I've now seen you in two third world countries. I saw you in Baghdad on a USO tour, and I saw you in Joliet, Illinois. Oh, nice. Where I was <laughs> born and raised. And so that, that at least got a chuckle yeah. out of him.
1: Well, I, you know, I was born in lesser mean streets of, or born in Chicago, but raised in the Northwest suburbs of Barrington. Mm. So I didn't didn't get the coolness. But now you're here. Yeah. We're, we're in a really, really cool place. But do you think about that? What are you professionally most proud of or personally most proud of? Does does that hold place for you?
2: As we record this, we're, we're sliding into the end of the year and this is a, a traditional time for reflecting on things like that. And it's, it is something that I don't do a good enough job reflecting on. Like a lot of folks, I tend to spend more time thinking about how that could have been done better or, you know, man, if I just made different choices or if I'd, you know, if, if, if. And that's good. Self-reflection, internalizing is is really important for growth, but I don't hold enough space for what's been done well, what I'm proud of. We were chatting before the the mic's heated up that I've got a week and a half old kid yes you do and you know it's the obligatory answer to say that you're super proud of of your family but i yeah I, I really i really am it's you know there's eight billion of us so in some ways it's not that big of a deal but my wife and i it's you know one of the wow. most important things at we've at the ever teamed up with on this. so yeah
1: again you're taking humility to the nth degree there but that's okay
2: Oh, you should see me around the kid, though. I, <laughs> she is the, the smartest, best, most capable yeah. person. She's already the president.
1: Well, so that's obviously something that motivates you, and, and, and you see that, and maybe it gives perspective. Does that give a different perspective? Does fatherhood, this new fatherhood give a different perspective on your work in any way?
2: Uh, one of the things that I most love about my daughter is the the future potential. At this point, I've I've been calling her our little lobster monkey because she is red and wrinkled and she's, you know, just a screamy little blob. But I I get so incredibly (laughs) excited thinking about who she's going to become and and the work that that I and others are doing to continue to push our community forward. I'm I'm really excited to think about the town that she's going to grow up in and she's going to face a whole new set of challenges but she will be equipped for those challenges not just because of how my wife and i raise her but because of the group of people that we're going to raise her with and around yeah she's gonna see us participating in a community that we weren't born and raised in but are very much a part of and have worked really hard to be a part of
1: yeah and that's a lovely message you know when you think about how many. People from different backgrounds are in our community. You may look from the outside and think, well, we're so homogenous and everybody's from Michigan. Everybody's just from Michigan. And that seems to be this ubiquitous term. I'm finding more and more lately in comedy for Midwestern, people are saying Michigan. It used to be like Chicago or Illinois. We just talked about that, but that's the synonymous term with Midwesterner, uh, which is okay. But thinking about your upbringing and professionally, did you receive advice along the way about your future from anybody that seemed insane, that turned out to be true and surprised you?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. And I will have the perfect answer for that at at 2 a.m.
1: It's one of those 2 a.m. questions, is it? (laughs) I've heard that before. It's not one I ask all the time, but... What I'm trying to get at is I I think people are interested in knowing what makes successful leaders and people who are doing good successful because you have this balance. You have to balance a business. You have to balance, you know, it's easy to talk about feeling good and and, and creating togetherness when you're able to do it. But I also like people from, from your background who has this uniqueness. I have to feel along the way somebody said something to you when you weren't listening to authority and you were like, reflected on it maybe at 2 a.m. and went, man, I put that into play at work today from that person.
2: I think it's less what people have said and, and more about what they've done. So, we, especially in the past couple of years, you know, we really idolize, uh, let's say, Navy SEALs, for example. You know, there were some movies that, that came out there, that, that are real popular. Everybody loves special forces. The reason they're so incredibly competent and capable is not because they're made up of a bunch of Jean-Claude Van Damme's. It's because they do the little things over and over and over again. And they do it with such discipline and rapidity, even when they're tired, even when they don't want to, even when it's so easy to make excuses about why you shouldn't do another two hours of very boring up-down drills. And I find that incredibly inspiring. I also think about Zingerman's, a great, started off as a deli out of Ann Arbor, and they're now a multi-multi-million dollar business. They're known for their customer service and for their really incredible food. And one of their founders, Ari, one of his 12 laws of business is do the things that other people know they should do, but don't. And it's there's no real secret sauce, I think, to to leadership or to performance or other things. It's real easy and, frankly, lazy to take a look at some of those outliers like Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Yep, those people totally exist. But really, what's much more common in incredible leaders, and, and not just leaders, but people that get shit done, is they show up and they know what they're supposed to do and they just do it. They don't make the excuses, they do the reps, they have those uncomfortable conversations face to face. Wouldn't it be easier to just send an email or let their staff worry about it? So I'm I'm rambling a little bit, but I think it's actions over inspiring words that have most impacted me.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I think you know, the act of rambling precludes not having a point, veering off <laughs> That was very cogent, and it it had a great point. I'm
2: glad it sounded that way to one of us.
1: Well, no, no. I mean, it resonated with me because I'm feeling that, you know, your time in the military, you know, all these other experiences that you've had have culminated in a really great fit for what your members are looking for in all of this, but what is the most fun you get to have in the day? And I don't mean, you know— like fun in a silly way, like bringing cupcakes to the team. But what's something that literally gives your heart joy about your business day?
2: It It is collaboration. I, I know that about myself. I cannot work in a vacuum. I can't remember if we talked about it earlier or not. I, I worked in print media mm-hmm. for some years. And being in that raucous, chaotic bullpen, bouncing ideas back and forth, being challenged by editors and, and being made sharper and better by editors through a collaborative, sometimes violently collaborative <laughs> process. That's what I love. I, I love working with other people and being challenged by other people and pushing back in that, there's just that inner play that I find. So it's not even sufficient to call it fun because I, I just I can't exist without it. I need that collaborative environment.
1: Right. So you don't have to lean on the one thing you're looking forward to that day. It's a lot of things you look forward to. And we did skip over a little bit the notion of your time in in media, and and I just again, kept talking
2: about New York. I was only there for six months. I don't know why I kept going. But it's back still to that.
1: it's still impressive because you know it, you needed that to acclimate and get you here, which is that's part of your journey. But. When you think about your your leadership style, what do you think your defining characteristic is as a leader and what do you think most leaders could improve upon?
2: Well, I'll start with the second part because I know I know what I can improve on and this is so much has been written about this so this is a classic leadership trap but I'm working to have more trust and to micromanage less. I think a lot of leaders who micromanage will acknowledge that they do it but and the follow-up question is great. What are you, what are you doing about that? And it, people make lots of excuses, but at the end of the day, it is fundamentally about trust and doing some important self-work to figure out why you don't have that trust yeah. naturally. Particularly if you have a great team, which so many leaders do. If you don't have a great team, fire them and go get a great team. Cause they're certainly out there. Yeah. But yeah, that trust, and I know I'm I'm a broken record, but embracing that abundance mindset, not falling prey to scarcity, because that, that crops up so many ways, philosophically, but also very operationally.
1: Right. And this keeps you a mycelium for mission-driven business. This is attributed to you. Is that not something you recall saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. You know, it... Root structure, and I'm very visual, so it created something. Do you, do you have, is that something that you've woven into your personal philosophy? The Mushrooms mm-hmm. are insane. I
2: When yeah, I think about what I want to be when fungus. I grow yeah, <laughs> oh my God. When I think about what I want to be when I grow up is a mushroom. They're just, they're incredible organisms. Did you play that, a lot of Super
1: Mario them? or do you? Because that's a central <laughs> plot a lot of, of it is <laughs> mushroom yeah. fungus, you know. <laughs> yeah. So to your point, right?
2: yeah. And that's a, a very cartoonish, infantilized version of, you know, what an incredible... The role that they play within any ecosystem, and, and ecosystem right now is a very popular term. And I, I would assume that 95% of people that love to use the word ecosystem don't understand ecology and couldn't tell you much <laughs> about an actual ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I During the pandemic, like a lot of people took up gardening. And I've learned so much and grown so much in a professional sense from learning about soil composition, learning about mycology, because there are just so many analogies to community building, to organizational development. And when a fungus, when a mycelia, it remediates a toxin from a soil. It doesn't just pull that bad stuff out. It actually transmutes that toxin into viable nutrients. And that's just an incredible metaphor for community building. You don't just get to pull the bad stuff out. <laughs> that bad stuff isn't even bad. It has a purpose. It has a function mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. the ecosystem. And so what can you do to transmute it from something that's causing pain to something that's productive, something that can be taken up you know, by the the neighboring root system? Yeah something that the whole community can benefit from.
0: Yeah, You just made me think about people's misconception of sustainability as well. Mm. And that when you just said that, like every invasive comes from somewhere, it has its indigenous roots somewhere and has its purpose. But, you know, when I catch a neighbor planting bamboo Mm. because... Mm -hmm. It's like it grows really easy. And and you can do a lot easy. of stuff with a lot of it. And it's like, yeah, but if you plant bamboo right now, you know, it will grow. It will take over and I could plant it here. And if you live three blocks from me, the root system will have bamboo growing in your yard and we could destroy the neighborhood. So, you know, yeah, a good, quick growing plant. But think about what you're doing. Uh, General Mills sending flowering seeds in their boxes of honey nut Cheerios and then quickly realizing they were sending like certain seeds
2: to areas that those should not be planted there because they will take over. Holy cow. It comes from a fundamental misunderstanding and and misattribution of how much impact any individual can have. Mm -hmm. And again, this is nothing new, but those folks that are planting the bamboo, Mm -hmm. those folks that are burning their garbage, you know, well, it's just, I mean, we got a whole planet. It's not that big of a deal. I'm not causing that much of an impact. I think it's really scary for people to think about the incredible negative or frankly, positive impacts that they can be having. Because once people fully understand what impacts they're capable of, then they're sort of on the hook (laughs) for Mm -hmm. making those things happen or not making them happen. And that's, that's scary for a lot of folks.
1: Well, you're attributed as saying on your LinkedIn profile, your raison d'etre is to support those businesses and industries which are awakening to their incalculable potential for social good. And that really stood out to me because, again, you seem like your missions and everything that drives you is very altruistic. You know, you're always, always giving to others. And so I want to know, one, are you sated by your day-to-day for this or do you seek other things and other ways to improve and then how do you spend time kind of keeping yourself worked on and motivating yourself because a lot of time has to be spent doing what you're doing
2: yeah like we talked about earlier I am kept motivated by being around other people that I really respect and and want to emulate there are so many examples in this community specifically but in other parts of Michigan, all over the country, all over the world that I I stay in contact with. And, and I'm fueled by the good work that they're doing. And so I, I do idolize some of these people and and always think, oh man, how can I get to that next level of impact? One of the things I've been thinking about more lately is that I do think it seems great to say that it's all altruistic, but really impact is just scorekeeping by another metric. And so in the same way that you can never be satisfied with making enough money, it's also possible that you can never be satisfied with the level of impact that you're having. Sure. So one of the things that I think I'm gonna to have to work on in the next couple of years is being satiated, being being sated by a certain amount of of efficacy and impact.
1: Is that trending towards obsession is that is that a word that that's volleyed about either internally for you or i mean i certainly use
2: much kinder wording when it's in my head but yeah i I, it, it does border on obsession and the problem with that is that i will always fall short of that idealistic picture which means you know i'll never be happy which paradoxically means right. I will never be as effective as I want to be. Right. You can't be miserable and be effective, right. or at least not for very long. And it all saying it out loud, it sounds just crazy, fucking grandiose. So I, there is some egotism behind all of it, sure. and that that probably warrants further self-discovery. But, but there's
1: there's common themes, you know. On this show, we have guests who are all very for others by nature of what they do. And I'm fascinated by the things that drive them. And there is a certain level of dedication and, and to giving to others so often. I'm always interested in what you afford yourself as well, what you afford those around you, what time that you have to afford anything to yourself with a brand new baby girl at home and all those new responsibilities. But I have one final question for you, and hopefully it's not. Too deep and not too heavy, and and you know you sometimes save things for the end for reasons. But what is your favorite Werner Herzog film? And is McClure's the best pickle
2: juice? You know, if he did a documentary about pickles, I think that would really that would be, be the fantastic. most interesting thing. It'd be ever. a very dark documentary about <laughs> about the history of pickles, staring into the abyss of the empty jar. Uh, yeah, I, I love. Werner Herzog. He's, I'm he's sorry, like,
1: I, I butchered his name. I love him as well. I was just, one going to ask you if th- is this why you were so excited I about had, this interview? I, no, well, no. I, I just I, yeah. I had we have questions to question. for our guest, and <laughs> I wanted to end with his favorite Werner Herzog film or performance. And is the question is McClure is the best pickle juice?
2: Yeah. So his, his best documentary is, oh my God, now I'm blanking on the name, but it's about mcmurdo base in antarctica it's everything you'd expect out of a, oh, okay. a Herzog film it's you know sweeping sweeping landscapes and you know again his morose germanic narration
0: encounters <laughs> but, at the end of the world yeah okay. that's
2: it okay he also has a cameo on parks and rec which is phenomenal because it's that such a true. funny upbeat lighthearted show, and then warner Herzog inexplicably him in. is just in, throw a... him in. you know. He, he's
1: he's in in the world of Star Wars canon now. Uh, oh yeah, he's yeah. I mean, he's interesting. And uh,
2: McClure's is that the best pickle juice? There are a lot of pickles out there. There, there are so many pickles I haven't even tried yet. I'm excited about the potential of all okay. the amazing so you're not fermented ready to foods commit. that are out there in yeah, the world. Okay, no. I no, wouldn't I want to commit to it either. I just need like another hundred, hundred fifty years to figure out definitively Perfect. what is the best.
1: Well, ironically, you know, pickling is a way to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I was gonna say. What, what, what was What was Seth Rogen in?
2: What oh was it, yeah, was oh, American Pickle. Yeah.
1: Actually, pretty good film. That's yeah. not what this is about. Not but,
2: based on hard science, but
1: right. <laughs> Loose. What I thought it was. Well, where um. Can listeners support? Get information about commonplace. Uh, uh, support first. Get information. And uh, what can anybody do? Volunteer, donations, anything like that.
2: Yeah, I, I think at this point, going through our website commonplacework.org is going to be the best way to learn about certainly what we have available through our, our physical space. We're always looking for folks that want to rent offices, folks that want dedicated desks, folks that just need a place to work from, you know, maybe a few days or even a few hours a week. And growing that family of people that use our space is really a way to enrich certainly our immediate community and, and then more broadly our, our full community. So I think, yeah, I think that's one way to go about it. My email, nick at commonplacework.org. My loving wife is going to murder me, but my cell phone is 719-367-9168. Yeah, we've got a newborn, so we're not sleeping anyway. Give me a call. You know,
1: it's that kind of dedication, (laughs) and I'm sorry I called it obsession, but it's (laughs) two uh, sides of the
2: same coin. It's
1: dedication honed in the right way and maybe more fun to look at from the outside and live with. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your pursuits and to all of those who pursue along with you working to make our communities better and more fulfilling places to live, work, and connect. And I think it's really, really amazing what you're doing. So thank you for taking the time to
2: talk to us. Thanks, man. This is fun.
1: And to all of our listeners, thank you all for listening. And thank you for pursuing the positive.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us again on the Pursuit of Podcast here in 2023. We want to say Gwech, Thank you to Nick Beatleston for joining us from Commonplace, sharing his story and his efforts to bring community together in one workspace. For more information and to learn about the community, go to commonplacework.org. And as always, for all things audio, video, podcasting, check us out at newleonard.com.